We have three readings from the gospel according to Luke. The first reading will be responsive. It's there printed in your bulletin. And then I will be reading from Luke chapter 2 after we complete the responsive reading. So hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. This is the second message of this Advent season. And it really is inextricably twined with last week. Now, this message will stand by itself. If you're visiting with us this morning and you weren't here last Sunday, you'll understand this message. It stands by itself. But you will be greatly helped if you go back, go to our website, and listen to the message from last week. Uh, we talked about a world, uh, a secular world, searching for Christmas. Uh, and we're going to begin with just a brief review this morning from that. That will last a couple of minutes, and then we'll launch into the subject for this morning as we continue this theme. Before we do that, as always, we're going to pray. We will pray and ask the Lord to teach us. You know, 
we've said this over and over again to each other in the last year, that we are always eager to get here on Sunday morning. And that's not because we're so holy or we're so good. It's because of what the Lord is doing in this place right now. And uh, I pray, I hope that you are praying every week as we look forward to the Lord's day here together as the church, that you're praying that the Lord would fill you with his spirit, that the Lord would continue to fill this congregation with his spirit because that's what's happening. It's not about John Sartell. It's not about some new church. It's about what God is doing in this place with this specific church. And you know it. You can, you can see it. You can hear it. You can feel it when in, in our worship, when you come through the doors, there's a joy. Uh, there's an eagerness. And that's not because of us. It's because of him. So we want this to continue. Someone said the other day, I don't know whether I want to move or not to a new building if, if we get this building. I don't know whether I want to move because I, I want to keep what we have here. But what we have here is not because we're meeting in this gym. This is a wonderful place. It's turned into a sanctuary every Lord's Day morning. And it's the Lord who turns it into a sanctuary. And so it's not just, as we come to this time every week, it's not just that we bow our heads and John prays that, and says that uh, he can't teach so it will make any difference in our lives. And we ask the Father to teach us. Just as that's not religious rhetoric, that's a real prayer. It's truth. And we must, we must remember what's at the heart and soul of everything that's happening here. And it's God's blessing. It's God filling us with his spirit. It's God bringing his majesty and his glory and his word in power to bear on our lives and upon his church. Now, with that in mind, let's pray together. Oh, Father, we bow before you with tears of thanksgiving for what you have done in this place and what you're doing. Our Father, we are a congregation full of sinners and full of sin. Our Father, what's happening here is not based on our goodness. It's not based on how we have earned your blessings. Oh, Father, it's grace. It's an undeserved favor. And we pray, our Father, that you'll continue to call us together here on the Lord's day. That you would continue to fill us with your spirit. Fill this gym with your spirit. Turn it into a sanctuary, your sanctuary. 
We pray that this would be a place where we would see you, where we would hear you, where we would know your presence, where we would know your majesty and know your holiness. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests this morning, the congregation of priests. It's not that one or two of us are priests. We're all priests. That's what your word says. We've been called to be priests to bring our neighbors before you, to bring our families before you, to bring each other before you in prayer. And Father, you've been, it's been incredible what we've seen in this year, how you've blessed and how you've brought healing and comfort, comfort beyond imagination. And so again, this morning, we pray for John Albritton, that you'll continue to bring healing to his body. Restore him completely, Father. Thank you for the surgery that on John Rowan and how you brought him through that. And we pray that you would keep him from any kind of complications, that you would quickly restore his health, and that this surgery would have the result that it was designed to have. We pray for the McLaren family at the loss of Grace's mother. Not lost, Father. We know where she is. We pray that you would bring comfort and blessing to that family. We pray for Joan Schaefer, that the doctors will know exactly what to do. We pray for David Mattingly. Thank you for how you've blessed in his health. And we pray that you would continue to improve that health. Give him strength, Father. We pray that you would give him many years yet upon this earth, that he would continue to be light and salt that he has been. We pray for Eileen Wood, that, Father, the doctors at Cleveland Clinic will know exactly uh, the remedy that is needed in this, that they'll understand what is happening. We pray for Phil and Sally Halley. Bless Sally as she cares for Phil. Father, we continue to restore. We just pray and we continue to see improvement. We thank you and we pray that that would continue. We pray for Molly Francis this morning, Father, that you would heal her of this cancer. Cause the doctors, technicians, everyone that is connected to this to see what they need to see, to hear what they need to hear, to do exactly what needs to be done. And we ask that you would heal her, Father. And now as we open your word, we know, Father, that John Sartell cannot teach that it will bring any difference in our lives. If we are to be blessed, it will be because you teach, Father, that you will teach in the power of your Holy Spirit. And that's our prayer. Changes, Father, maybe some of us for the first time. Tell us the story. Tell us the story of Jesus. Remind us. Cause us, Father, to understand more, to see more, to hear more, to understand at a greater depth. And when we leave here, Oh, Father, cause us to know that we have heard from you. 
And we pray in Jesus' name, and we pray for his glory. Amen. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? A quick review. There's an anomaly in which our own secular culture is living in December of 2023. That is their conundrum every Christmas. They are in search of a Christmas. A Christmas without God. A Christmas without the incarnation. A Christmas without the claims of Jesus. The claims of Jesus to be the Son of God and Son of Man. A Christmas without angels. A Christmas without an atoning cross and resurrection. Here is a terrific irony that we need to share with our secular friends. If there is no virgin birth, if there is no incarnation, if Jesus is not the Son of God and Son of Man, if he did not die an atoning death, if he did not walk out of that tomb, there would be no gigantic holiday that we call Christmas. It would not be here. He is the sole reason it exists. It came, it grew. These holy days out of his birth, out of the incarnation, out of his life, out of his death, out of his resurrection. They make up, these events make up the greatest event since creation. These events turn the world upside down. So the celebration of his advent throws the supernatural every year into the public arena. Every year. And that's what the world's, that's, that, that's where the world struggles. How can we handle this? We, we don't believe in the supernatural. But how can, how then can we celebrate Christmas? The Advent throws a supernatural every year into the secular arena, whether we're in Memphis or New York, whether we're in Seattle or Miami, whether we're in the first century or 21st century. However, as we talked about that last week, the celebration of the Advent, the celebration of the Incarnation, the celebration of the Son of God becoming flesh also throws the supernatural, the supernatural event, throws it down into the middle of the church. Every year we're reminded of that from which we've come. Why do we need to keep returning to the details of the Incarnation? We need to be reminded. Our children need to be taught and reminded that these are the non-negotiable truths of his gospel. Non-negotiable truths about his identity, about his work. 
So it's a continuation of that theme, this gigantic thing of the incarnation, the gigantic life and ministry of Jesus, the atoning death and resurrection, the ascension to glory. What have these non-negotiable truths done to your life and done to my life, done to our lives? You say, John, what are you, what are you trying to say? Well, I've tried, and I can't do this. I can't find it. I've tried to find someone in Scripture who had a relationship with God, who had a relationship with Christ, whose life was not seriously disrupted by that relationship. Let's just name a few. Abraham. Sarah. I mean, how would you like to be 90 years old and have a baby? I would call that a disruption, wouldn't you? Moses, Joseph, Aaron, Caleb, Samuel, Ruth, Naomi, David. Skip ahead to the New Testament. Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist. Mary, Joseph, Peter, Matthew, Paul, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. I don't care whether they're a major player, whether they're a minor player. You come this week and show me someone that had a close relationship with God whose life was not disrupted by that relationship. I cannot find one. Look at Mary and Joseph. God came without warning. Mary was not praying for this to happen. Joseph was not praying for this to happen. They were happily engaged. And then God invaded. Completely uninvited. Think about that. It was that way with Abraham when God came to him down in Haran. Where he was living with his extended family. They had started out in the Ur of the Chaldees and his father Terah had moved them to Haran. And God comes to Abraham in Herod. Abraham, liquidate all you have. Leave your family, leave your extended family here. Well, Lord, where am I going? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'll find out along the way. He came to Moses. Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years in the backwater. 40 years. God comes to him. Time to go back to Egypt, Moses. I want you to lead my people out of slavery. You know, you think about Moses and Abraham. Did God make an appointment with them? Get done say, is it all right for us to talk? Can you put me somewhere on your calendar? He did not ask if they minded if he approached. I was reading a book sometime in the last year by a well-known Christian author. And I came to this sentence. God will never violate your space 
without being invited. Now, this man is supposed to be orthodox. But I don't know what Bible he studied to find that God. I know he was not speaking the God of Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, and Joseph, and Mary. God was not invited into any of their lives. He invaded. He invaded Bethlehem. He invaded. Without warning. Without warning. Abraham did not know. Moses did not know. Mary, Joseph did not know. But God came to their lives with no warning. Many people view God as a sort of cleaning lady who shows up and asks if we would like our house to be cleaned. If we say yes, Jesus will come in like that cleaning lady, like that cleaning lady with her broom and mop and rags and cleaners and clean up our lives. Folks, that's not the gospel. God is like an invading army coming to a fortress where there is out and out rebellion against him. He breaks down the resistance by sending his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who created the universe, and changes our hearts. He conquers our rebellion with his word, with his holiness. He compels us with his love. What what do we read in Romans? While we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Saying that we invited God into our lives is like saying the Germans invited the Allies to Normandy Beach. By the time we got around to speaking to God on friendly terms, we had already been conquered. We don't invite him into our lives. We bow before him. We surrender to him. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? That's a real question. He came without warning. He still does. He came on his own terms. Mary or Joseph could not say, well, God, if we're going to have this relationship, here's what we will do and here's what we won't do. God set the terms. Mary, you're going to be pregnant out of wedlock in a small town. Joseph, you'll be engaged to a pregnant young lady and marry her even though you know the child is not yours. You'll make an arduous trip, a hard trip to Bethlehem. Then you'll flee, you'll run for your lives to Egypt with a newborn. 
you'll not be able to return to your home in Nazareth probably for several years. Who set those terms? God did. He said, this is how you will serve me. Now's a good time to ask yourself, what is it that you've told God that you won't do? Because I promise you, he's told you to do things that you do not want to do. I don't think you're that much different from me. All of us had said at some point, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to find me doing that. C.S. Lewis understood this. Now put this quote on your scripture sheet this week. I hope that you'll take it home, put it on the refrigerator where you can see it to remind you of this message because it's exactly what Lewis was saying. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. So it's sort of a Rubicon. One goes across, or not, but if one does, there is no manner of security against what will happen, end quote. Elizabeth Elliot thought God had called her to be a minister's wife. Then her husband was murdered by the Alka Indians as he was striving to take the gospel to those savages in Ecuador. He was murdered. She was left behind with a baby girl. Then God called her to leave with her daughter and go to the jungle and to take the gospel to the very individual men who murdered her husband. To live in a hut in their primitive village. To love them, to minister to them, and to teach them. Now I know what you're saying. And I've got an answer for you. I know that you're saying, well, John, God does call certain people to do such things. But those people are giants. Like the Virgin Mary. Like Mary, the Virgin. What an example. I've heard this before. Well, John, when I've said something to somebody, somebody say, well, John... God didn't call me to be Billy Graham. Okay. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't think that. Because there's two more reasons. We've looked at God comes without warning. He comes on his own terms. But there's two other truths that we must understand. What were the first words Jesus said when he came preaching for the first time? The incarnate Son of Man and Son of God. Look at it. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of. Here he comes preaching his first sermons and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Repent. The Greek word used there is metanoia. It means change. Change your direction. It means change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Repent of the way you're going. Turn around from the way you're going and go in 180 degrees in a different direction. That's the beginning. That's Jesus at the beginning to call you and to call me. Repent. Change your direction. The very first command he gives us is disturbing our lives. Does Jesus ever call us to himself without using that term? No. Not ever. Not one single time. There's no going to Jesus or going with Jesus unless there's repentance, a turning around. Augustine loved to talk about his life before Christ. And one of the things he mentions was stealing of these pears. And he would go and steal these pears with some other teenagers from this orchard. And he didn't steal them because he was hungry. He didn't steal them because he needed them. He didn't steal them to give to the poor. He stole them because he loved to steal. He just enjoyed it. God came to him and said, stop stealing pears. You have an illicit relationship, Augustine. Stop it. There was this woman with who he had had a relationship. He had other such relationships, but he had a relationship with her a long time. And he saw her. She was looking for him. Didn't understand what had happened to him. And she saw him. And she called out his name. And he had been walking toward her. Called out his name. He turned around and ran in the other direction. And she cried out, It's me, Augustine, it's me. And he said, It's not me, it's not me. What's he doing? He was repenting, running in the opposite direction. When I was in Virginia, there was a young lady who visited our church for several summers. She was visiting her grandmother there, and she'd come and stay a month and then go back home. She had been a nominal church member all of her life, went to church, was nominal. She had never really heard the gospel. And by some of our activities with the youth during the summer, she became fascinated with what she was hearing. And she began to ask question after question after question. Finally, one afternoon, she just broke. And she was ready to confess her faith in Christ. Now, this young lady was not a hardened 
woman of the streets. She was a junior, senior in high school. She was an excellent student, good grades, wonderful reputation in the city where she lived. You would not have thought of her as being a wicked person. I didn't think of her as being a wicked person. Yet, when she began to pray, she began to confess her sins, to repent. And you would have thought she was a member of Sin's Hall of Fame. She wept and she wept. She confessed sin after sin, habit after habit. When she left that summer, she went home dramatically changed. I saw her from time to time, and she remained that way. Now, she did not become a missionary like Elizabeth Elliot in the jungles of South America. She was simply a sinner whom Jesus called to repent. And that means her life was dramatically and powerfully disturbed. The very nature of repentance means disturbance to our lives. Well, there is, a po- is there a point where Jesus stops calling us to go to repent? Is there a point where he stops calling us? Some of us act like there is. We've been a Christian for so many years, and we've forgotten all about repentance. Will there be a day that he doesn't call us to repentance? No. They'll never, that day will never be here. Your ears, you may be deaf to his call. Your ears may be stopped up. But does anybody here go an hour without sin? Does anybody, anybody go a day without sin? His call to repentance will be as constant as our sin is. Has he not called us to kill the addictions that enslave us? And you say, well, John, I'm not a drug addict. I don't have any addiction. Everybody in this room has addictions. Some have addiction to gossip. Some have addiction to anger. Some have addiction to lust. Some have addictions to lying. Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the trauma of dealing with such sins, such addictions. Look at Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Folks, who said that? This is the Son of God and Son of Man from glory, whose birth we're celebrating right now. He is, what's he saying in those verses? He's saying repentance will be disruptive to your life. If your eye leads you astray, pluck it out. That's radical. So I ask you as a Christian, I ask you as we're celebrating the incarnation, his birth, 
has this Jesus, is this Jesus, has he been disruptive to your life? And is he being disruptive to your life? Well, that's the third reason he's going to be disruptive is repentance. But there's yet another demand from Jesus that will bring just as much disruption as repentance. Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and walk in another direction. And he also calls us to turn from our love of sin to what? A love for him. He says, love me. Look at Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You say, hold it. Hold it. That's got to be a hyperbole. I'm supposed to love Jesus more than I love my own son or daughter? It's not a hyperbole, folks. It's not a theoretical question. It's a hard question. When he gave us the Ten Commandments, what was the very first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you love anyone more than you love me, you're making them out to be gods. There's people all over East Memphis this morning that are worshiping their children. They love their children more than they do Christ. No, Jesus was not giving hyperbole. He was stating a truth of salvation. Love me more than you do your son or daughter or your mother or father. If you think your life would not be seriously disrupted if you started loving Jesus above all other loves in your life, you simply don't understand who Jesus is. That brings us to a conclusion. If he is the gigantic Lord of heaven and earth, if he does hold the galaxies in his hands, if he's that huge, if this God comes without warning, if this God comes on his terms, not on ours, if he comes calling us to repentance, if he calls to love him first, then his very presence will disturb our lives. J.R. Tolkien, before he wrote the Ring Trilogy, wrote a book called The Hobbit. It's a marvelous story about Bilbo Baggins and his long, he was a hobbit, and there was, it's about his long journey with some dwarfs to a mountain cave to rid the countryside of a marauding, fire-breathing dragon named Smog. As they get near the cave where Small lived, we read that they became very careful and very wary. And Token explains that by writing, quote, Smog was still to be reckoned with. It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculation if you live near him. It's a shame that most of us as Christians do not think like that. We say we live near the Lord God Almighty. We say we pray. We say we know him. We say he's in our home. He's in our houses. And yet we make our daily plans and yearly plans and our life plans 
as if he's not there. Until your life is disturbed. Disturbed because he comes without warning. Disturbed because he comes on his terms, not on ours. Disturbed because he calls us to repent of our sins, to change our way of thinking, to change the way we live in the world. Disturbed because he calls us to love him first above anyone or anything. He calls us to tear down the idols and because he is massively huge, as large as the universe is, God's, gee, Christ is bigger. Christ is larger. He created it. Now, you may be saying, John, this sermon does not sound Christmassy. Repentance, tearing down idols, loving him to the extreme of loving him more than I do my own children. It doesn't sound Christmassy. Folks, if you spend your Christmas, if you spend the Christmas of 2023, repenting of your sins and loving Jesus first. You will celebrate this Christmas. You will celebrate his incarnation like you never have before. It will be the most magnificent Christmas you've ever spent. In all humility, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the best Christmas sermons you've ever heard. So I ask you the question now. Has the incarnate Christ disturbed your life? I must tell you. I must warn you. It's better to be seriously disturbed by the incarnate Christ here and now. For one day he's coming to disrupt and conquer. And it won't be with a cross. And it won't be with grace. Oh, may he disturb all our lives this Christmas of 2023. And may we surrender. Surrender to the mighty Christ as we never have. Amen.